Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation and special musical performance with Ramblin' Jack Elliott and guest host Steve Heilig. Thanks for coming today. It's great to see so many people here. My name is Kira Epstein. I'm the coordinator of the New School. I'm going to introduce Oren, who is going to talk a little bit about Commonweal, just for those of you who might be new here, and he'll introduce Steve, and then we'll get going. So I'm going to introduce Oren Slosberg. He is our Chief Strategies Officer, and he's going to tell you about Commonweal. Thank you. Usually, uh, Michael Lerner, the founder of Commonweal, would be here today, but he's somewhere between Athens and California in the air, so... Oh, he just landed. Okay, he just landed from Athens, <laughs> assuming jet lag. I've been here now for six months, and I've been working with Michael looking at directions that Commonweal takes as it moves ahead. And I wanted to formally uh, welcome you all to Commonweal, and just maybe a few words. I know, I know a lot of you, and I know a lot of you know a lot about Commonweal, and I won't give you my elevator pitch. Someone asked me about that, and I said, you need a very tall building for an elevator pitch about Commonweal. So, but in, in, a, in a nutshell, what Commonweal is, it's a center for study and research that touches on a lot of issues ranging from environment and health, permaculture, permaculture healing. We do retreats for people with cancer. It's been here at this site. This is an old um, site, one of the original Marconi sites uh, for about 40 years. And some of the people that were there back in the 70s are still part of the Commonweal staff. Um, we've been doing a lot of work here with people with cancer. There are retreats here and nutrition programs and a variety of ways in which we support both the local, the national, and actually the global communities. One of our programs is the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which are 5,000 scientists that meet regularly to discuss issues as they relate to health and the environment. And Steve Heilig, who is leading the conversation today, is actually a staff, works with the Collaboration on Health and the Environment. Though I think today he probably has his hat as um, uh, a music journalist. No, this, this one here. <laughs> that hat over there. <laughs> so on top of being the editor of the Thursday News, um, the local Bolinas newspaper, um, he's also uh, a leading scientist on issues in health and the environment. He works uh, with the San Francisco Medical Society and um, a member of CHE. And Steve, to you now. Thank you very much. We have actually, we're going to try this, a very special guest recorded to introduce our uh, special guest here. Today. He left home at 15 to join the rodeo where he learned to sing cowboy songs. But it was hearing his first Woody Guthrie record that transformed him into the man Sam Shepard called a wandering true American minstrel. In giving new life to our most valuable musical traditions, Ramblin' Jack has himself become an American treasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramblin' Jack Elliott. I got the blues from my baby lamey by the San Francisco Bay. The ocean liner, she gone so far away. Didn't mean to treat her so bad. Best gal I ever have had. Said goodbye, like to make me cry. I wanna lay down and die. Ah, never got a nickel and I ain't got a 
Nazi time. She don't come back, I think we're gonna lose my mind. If she ever come back to stay, gonna spend another brand new day. Walking with my baby down by the San Francisco Bay. About to go insane. Sound like I heard my baby the way she used to call my name. She ever come back to stay? Spend another brand new day walking with my baby. Our special guest announcer, obviously, I think most of you could recognize, that was President Bill Clinton award, awarding Jack the Presidential Medal for the Arts in 1998. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm glad it worked. And so, well, we'll get into some other stuff, but I just want to hear about that song, San Francisco Bay Blues, written by Jesse Fuller. Jesse Fuller. And you knew him, right? One man band. Yeah, he played with the, the drum and the harmonica and everything hooked up. Well, he had cymbals. Didn't have a drum. Cymbals. He had, he had a foot-operated bass that he invented. It had five strings, I believe. He called it a fodella. F-O-T-D-E-L-L-A. <laughs> And you actually played, toured with him a bit or played with him? Yeah, I did a tour of England with Jesse one time. We played Islington Town Hall and a couple of other places. I don't remember them all. But I remember going across the street with Jesse one time, and he's carrying his 12-string guitar in the case on his right shoulder. And the traffic, no, I think he had a left shoulder. Because you step off the curb, you want to be looking to the right for traffic. But I think he had it on the wrong side, and I caught him just in time. I said, look out, Jesse. Traffic, you know. And he said, that's okay, I got insurance. <laughs> <laughs> he had a funny way of looking at life. His 
car. He had a. He was driving in a Nash Rambler. Huh? I don't know if it was, he just liked the name. I think it was a cool car. It was, he could sleep in the back. It was a station wagon. He had the uh, big footella, which took up a lot of space. And then he had his 12-string guitar in a case and a sleeping bag and a shotgun, 12-gauge shotgun. He's ready for anything, huh? Yeah, truck stops, park anywhere you like. <laughs> so, so this happy occasion to have Ramblin' Jack Elliott here came about uh, mainly because about, I don't know, three, four months ago, I did a talk here with Michael Lerner, and I was really kind of shocked and amazed to see this is what we did it downstairs, but to see Ramblin' Jack Elliott there listening. And we went downtown afterwards to hang out. And, and I was sit. fascinated. We sat around down there, and at one point he offered me, I think, $15 and a pretty nice pen knife for my dog, Shuggy. And I, I said... I usually offer 10. He's a, good, <laughs> he's a good dog, isn't he? So I said, we're going to have to negotiate this. It might take you doing some kind of a talk first to get us here. So... Here we are, it took a lot of time to set it up, and we'll talk about the dog later, so. So, as he said, it's unrehearsed, we're just gonna, you know, but I've uh, done a, a... I'm very happy that you have the dog in your family. I've had animals time, time, right now, I'm, I lead a very lonely life, actually, when I'm not on the road or, you know. You've been on the road a lot lately, though, too. I work in the entertainment business. I'm not a music lover. I just play the stuff to get cat food and diesel fuel. I like trucks. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about how you got to this point, right? You know? Well, when I play, I give them their money's worth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, they already got it. We're cool. <laughs> this is all gravy from here on out. Oh, so. <laughs> I'll be good. I'll be good. So... What we're going to talk about a little bit is how does a uh, nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn become Ramblin' Jack Elliott, you know, eventually, you know, so, I, I mean... I might have been nice, but I wasn't very Jewish. Well, <laughs> you had a Jewish name, right? So yeah. you were born, too, your dad was a surgeon, yeah. and you were there, and you, you started wanting to become a cowboy real early, it seemed. You ran well, away to do that. The bell was ringing all night long, and the phone was ringing all night long. He never got any sleep. He was always delivering babies and going out on house calls and stuff. Mm -hmm. One of his patients had a pet monkey. Her name was Mrs. Lintz. She lived over by the water. It was a beautiful drive, and I was happy to be on a car ride with my dad early in the morning before school, maybe 5 a.m. or something. He's going over to check on her health, but I never forgave my dad for not inviting me in to see that monkey. And the monkey, monkey was very large. It wasn't just a monkey. It was a gorilla. And she, when he got too big to fit in bed with her anymore, she sold him to John Ringling North. And he was like a front attraction when you walked into the entrance at the, at the circus mm -hmm. in a big cage with a truck tire hanging from a chain to take the place of Mrs. Lintz, I suppose. <laughs> So you actually saw a rodeo, like what, Madison's, was it Madison Square Garden even? Yeah, same yeah. building. Same, same. So I thought that place God lived in there up in the ceiling. And so you actually saw, that inspired you to, then you were, you were in love with cowboys, right? Yeah, and they had hole in the ceiling for, you know, stuff in and out, aperture. Mm -hmm. It looked like all of the uh, 
supporting timbers of the roof, uh, substructure, I don't know what we'll call them, beams were inter covered over by a completely like a blanket of what looked like burlap suspended underneath those. So you makes it neater and mm -hmm. so what was it though about the rodeo that you that you love so much that wanted made you want to run off and join them uh, I knew it wasn't just the burlap Geology <laughs> <laughs> uh, comes splashing in there was a circle of light you know like spotlight from up there down to the gateway where the horses come into the arena and uh, they shone this light on a big circle of white paper that was glued onto a circular wooden frame with a big empty space so Gene could jump his horse over the bottom of that rim and come bursting in through that disc of white paper in the light. Bursting right into the light, as it were. And it was not an optical trick. It was Gene on his horse with his hat on, saddled spurs, Boots come crashing in from nowhere with this big white light. All of a sudden, bang, here he is. <laughs> like in the comics. Shazam! <laughs> and and he comes galloping around the arena, waving his big snow-white Stetson hat to the crowd and smiling. And you're like 13 and or 14 I, I years old, right? I didn't know what to make of it, but it sure was entertaining. You're, you're, uh, you, were, you, you were like 13 or 14 years old, I right? was nine. Nine, okay. Yeah. And by 13 or 14, you were gone, though, right? Oh, yeah, when I was 15, I uh, took off. Uh -huh. I met a cowboy when I was 14. He come riding right past the house early in the morning before time to go to school. It was the first day of school, back to school in September of 1945. Just the war had ended, and I was uh, 14 years old. Mm -hmm. And uh, I hear hoofbeats coming down the street with no wagon wheels. Now, we had horse-drawn milk wagons and junk wagons, and vegetable farmers from out Long Island used to come in with their horse and wagon and sell fruits and vegetables off the back of the wagon or the side. And scissors sharpeners, knife sharpeners, horse-drawn horse wagon. Mm -hmm. It was late 30s and early 40s. And, and uh, you ran off with them. So you took off? You and were there were some diesel trucks coming by, too, exactly. right by the house. And I took off uh, with a couple of school chums who were poets. I met them mm -hmm. at a school in Connecticut that I was attending for a while, but I got kicked out of there for trying to turn a Shetland pony into a bareback bronc. <laughs> Nobody got hurt. <laughs> and you're, so you hitchhiked off with these guys. They, yeah, got, they got lost along stopped, the way. And he had only room for one person, uh -huh. and he was going to North Carolina. Uh -huh. So I said, well... He's going to Wilmington, North Carolina. I didn't even know where that was. It's on the coast. That much, that's all I knew. He says, try to get a ride down to Wilmington and I'll try and wait for you at the bus station. Quick thinking, goodbye. I never saw them again. <laughs> and then we're- I know one of them lived to get published as a poet and I think he was a school teacher or professor in some university in Missouri. 
And how long were you gone that time before your parents started looking for you? Three months. Mm-hmm. Well, they'd started immediately. <laughs> they, I had only, that was only the second time I'd run away, and the first time was a smoothie. It was uh, very brief. Well, so at one point there was this poster up with a picture of you. It said, $500 reward. City of New York, missing since May 8th, 1947. Elliot Adnipaz, five foot eight, 120 pounds, age 16, looks older. Slim, light complexion, brown hair, brown eyes, gold rimmed glasses, navy blue sweater, blue dungarees, black and white checkered jacket, carrying, yes. carrying small canvas bag, probable destination a ranch. It was a Woolrich. It says probable destination a ranch, parentheses, parents not opposed to him staying on ranch. Sure. Do you think they wanted to get rid of me? <laughs> but they were tired of me roping the furniture. <laughs> so you, I don't know what, <laughs> you actually came back eventually to get finished high school. I did, yeah, after three months on there, and I was like eating between eleven and nineteen pancakes every morning because uh-huh. the flapjacks were delicious, and it was the only thing that cook made that I could keep down. And uh, I, I really didn't like the beans at all, and nothing, nothing. Coffee was good. Yeah. Coffee with evaporated milk. And one of them told one of the cowboys, one of the people told you, go back to school because that's right. Uh, he was an old rodeo clown, and uh, my parents had sent a letter with the picture, you know. And Colonel Jim called me over to the house. He said, "This your picture, Poncho." They called me Poncho. They couldn't pronounce my name, uh, you know, a family name, old Russian name. Too many goddamn syllables, anyway. So you came back, you, you got you your... Go, oh. If you stay here, you might end up being a cowboy. And if you might like it, and you might not like it. And if you go to high school and get your diploma, you can do anything in the world that you want to do including cowboy. <laughs> so I wrote my parents and told them I was coming home and I would finish up high school and thanks for inviting me. <laughs> so were you learning guitar and music then on the road? I had a few guitar lessons from a Cuban man that my Aunt Mildred, who was musical, knew. Mm-hmm. But you weren't playing yet while you were out? Uh, not really. Cowboy. I was actively playing the guitar. I was just sort of learning C, G, and E and strumming it a little bit. And, but when I got back, we had one of our clowns on the show. We had two clowns. The, uh, the one who gave me my first cigar and told me to might, might like to go home. Mm-hmm. He was, his, his son grew up to be a fine bull rider, Punky Crothers, and uh, came to see me at a show where I was playing in Pasadena. He'd been in Vietnam, and his other buddy that was with him, been to Vietnam, was the son of the other clown, Bramer Rogers, and this was Jimmy Rogers, and he was a good guitar picker too. No relation of the Jimmy Rogers. <laughs> so then you're back in New York, you're hanging out, so right about within a few years, a very important thing happened in your life, you met Woody Guthrie. Right, 1950, 51? That was about the only thing that happened that year. <laughs> Can't remember. Oh, another nice thing before that was uh, I met Eric Von Schmidt, who was the son of a famous 
Western painter, Harold von Schmidt, who did the Western illustrations in the Saturday Evening Post and the Tugboat Annie stories. And he'd been a cowboy in New Mexico in his youth, and he knew Will James, who was the greatest cowboy artist of all time, perhaps, along with C.M. Russell. And so when you met Woody, though, how did that happen? Well, I was hanging out with some pickers in Greenwich Village that I'd met when I went to see a radio program with Oscar Brand. He had Woody on and Led Belly on his show as guests. And uh, I met Tom Paley, who I thought was the world's greatest guitar player. He could play like Merle Travis. And he could frail a guitar. I've never seen anybody frail a guitar before. You know, frailing is strumming with the back of your, your fingernails down strum, brushing the strings that way and uh, to do it on a guitar. I've never seen anyone do it. And it produces a kind of rhythm that can't be imitated any other way. It's, if you don't strum it that way, you don't get that sound. So frailing, you can identify frailing without having to being able to see somebody. You could hear it on a record. You can hear it on, on the radio. That's Fralin. It's got that identifiable, mm -hmm. unique, old-timey sound to it. Mm -hmm. I can't do it verbally. I can, <laughs> I can do a Model A Ford. I can do a DC-3. <laughs> so Woody Guthrie was playing. He was, Woody Guthrie was playing there in the, the, in the thing, and then you got to meet him after uh, he played? He or? actually was not feeling well when I called him up. Tom would give me the number to call. This is a very unromantic story, but if you want the truth, I can share it with you. I was there. And, and there's been so many times, you know, when, when you're tempted to make the story sound a little bit more exciting and more romantic, like I wish I could say that I met Woody changing trains in the yard in <laughs> Omaha. <laughs> I'm scared of freight trains. I rode one freight train, and that was enough for me. It was uh, from Texas, Canada, Little Rock, and it wasn't my idea. These other guys that were going to hitchhike on the spot where I'd been standing showed up with a pistol and said that I might like to go on that train, and I agreed with them somehow. <laughs> Walked away. Nobody got hurt. I'd been up all night in a little truck stop hoping for a ride, but there wasn't much traffic on the outskirts of Texarkana, Texas. Going from Florida to New York for a gig with Josh White at a college. That was a big deal to me back then. This is, I'd never done nothing like that before. I had just driven Woody Guthrie down to Florida in a Model A Ford. That cost $25. It was a darn nice little car, but it was hard to start. And Woody spent $50 trying to get it started on the way down. Must have taken three days to get to North Florida to visit Woody's hero, uh, one of Woody's few heroes, and uh, his man named Stetson Kenny was living in the woods in North Florida. He was the number one enemy of the Ku Klux Klan. He had joined the Klan and was a member in good standing for a couple of years, and, uh, uh, but he didn't participate in any of their uh, favorite crimes, but he was right along in the sheet and had his own sheet and everything and got photographs of it, wrote the book called Southern Exposure. Uh, he was, was, he was a spy. 
He was a spy. Yeah, yeah. He was a spy. And where was Stetson on the day that the book came out and he was declared number one enemy of the Ku Klux Klan? He was in the Klan headquarters office in Atlanta snooping around. He stole a wastebasket from underneath somebody's desk, ambled out in the hallway, walked down the hall. To the end, there was a little bathroom. Locked himself in the bathroom with the wastebasket, looking through the basket for any interesting letters. With, uh, you know, like, let's get together and uh, lynch Bobby Dale <laughs> next week. Don't forget your robe. <laughs> so, but you ended up becoming very, actually, really close to Woody Guthrie. It seems, yeah, right? and I his whole family, Arlo and all of them, hanging out with him. And you know, I mean, I think it was his daughter, Nora, who said you were his closest companion in the last years of his life. Well, in 1951, two, three, and part of 54, uh, we did a lot of very uh, togetherness traveling. And I uh, didn't play hardly any gigs. We weren't playing gigs. I, went, I saw him at a party once where he was being paid, I think, $50 to perform at a private party in a little street in the Greenwich Village. Cute little street. I was just back from the West Coast, having just met him for the first time three months earlier. I'm talking backwards now. That's all right. 51. I phoned Woody uh, with the number, you know, I'd been listening to his record. A friend of mine loaned me some album of Woody singing some of his great songs like uh, Union Burying Ground or Hard Traveling or uh, one called uh, Talkin' Sailor about uh, being sailing in a Liberty ship in World War II and getting torpedoed by German uh, submarines and get, uh, getting his guitar, mandolin, fiddle, and two buddies into the lifeboat both times. And he had a fiddle where he carved his name on there and the date. It said, Woody Guthrie, 1944, SS Sea Porpoise, it was one of the ships, SS William B. Travis, NMU, CIO, USA, drunk once, sunk twice. <laughs> whole story, put the whole life story in eight words on a fiddle. Pretty good fiddle, too. So didn't he had a guitar that said on its on there too was this machine kills fascists that's right, right? It, it so was a, that you know, was a sign he had a sign on there paper. I, I mean he was he know. was you know uh, an icon already who was singing union songs uh, songs for the rights of the migrant workers and all Probably that the first one big influence well, on you Molly Jackson I believe she might have been even earlier but mm -hmm. I'm not a student of that history but but he was a big influence on you and the kind of music you wanted was, to do right yeah great greatly so and some of the Songs are just some of the most powerful poetry uh, describing uh, man's inhumanity and uh, some good ideas for maybe uh, hoping to uh, make the world be a better place to live in. Mm -hmm. he, he said it like nobody else could say it. He was like the Walt Whitman of the 
working man sort of thing. And mm-hmm. He thought the communists had some pretty good ideas, and he was highly and widely suspected of being one himself, but they wouldn't have a person in there. He was a little bit too sloppy in his dress. <laughs> so after, I think right around, or soon after he died, you actually got married and moved off then to London, to England, was it, in the, the mid-50s? Yeah, we, we landed in England in September of, 55. And what made you want to go move over there at that point? Well, it wasn't. My, we were living in Hollywood, and it wasn't real exciting. Although June, my wife, had some very nice friends who she was an actress, and mm-hmm. she had a lot of her friends, who of course, were actors and actresses. And I met some. Some were even famous. Uh, one guy, the guy that took our wedding photograph when we decided to get married, was the first. Bless you. The first face on the screen in the movie High Noon <laughs> was a bad guy. And this actor actually came from New Jersey, and he had a handlebar mustache. Looked good in Western clothes. His name was Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of June's. So one day we were over at Lee's house, and we told him we were going to get married. He said, hey, I'll take a picture. And we sat on the floor with the banjo and took this snapshot of me and June smiling into each other's eyes. And she's, I think she was holding the banjo. I think it was Daryl Adams' banjo because we didn't own a banjo. I think Daryl loaned, loaned us his banjo with the Japanese lettering on it. said some kind of a philosophical Zen Buddhist saying that he had on his banjo. Don't remember what it was now. <laughs> Daryl was one of the great characters of the, my entire musical experience. And I am a new noise freak. I like to listen to sound of steam engines, horses snorting, and uh, trains and diesel trucks, and some music. <laughs> I'm a noise lover. You're listening to a conversation and musical performance with Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Steve Heilig. So, <laughs> how long did you stay? I like music. What were you doing over there? I mean, in, in London, how was that for you, and how long did you stay over there? We were in and out of London for six years. We got there in 1955, in September. And one of Jan's, one of uh, June's, I got crosswires there. Jan's another wife. <laughs> it's hard, hard, hard to keep them straight. I know it's all right. <laughs> so actually, I wonder, I, what would happen against her? <laughs> so I actually thought of another thing back. I think it was before you went there. I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, I, I've heard that you knew Jack Kerouac, and he actually read to you the entire manuscript of On the Road. I think he was in love with my girlfriend. I don't know if see. <laughs> but is that? But he did. He so wrote how? Some jealous things in his book about me. How long did that take to read the Five whole? Minutes. Oh no! no, no. <laughs> <laughs> to read the whole thing. To read the whole book. Three days. Three days. And three bottles of wine. Only a bottle a day. Oh, he he brought a bottle a day because he had a loaf of French bread, uh-huh. and he had to walk about three blocks from the bakery in a wine store. 
it was just in, in the village too? Village. Yeah, it was in the village. Was he doing this just to see if you liked it or to impress oh, the yeah, girl? Oh, yeah, he enjoyed reading it to us, and we yeah. took turns reading some of the pages. Yeah. He didn't have to do the whole thing. Did you hang out with him otherwise as a friend or just around? He came by many times to visit. I, I couldn't say whether it was five or ten, but mm -hmm. it was several times. Also, there was uh, a lot of other authors and poem, poets, many of whom got famous after yeah. that, but they weren't known then. Well, because it's funny you say that, because I think it was from, I don't know, I remember if this was from Wikipedia or something, but it, it did say when it was talking about this time, it said, Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg both noted Jack's aptitude for stealing their girlfriends. <laughs> That's... Now, you, these guys are very biased, and they were... <laughs> Did you ever meet, I, I can't remember if I brothers, did you ever meet Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali too? I was in the same room with him in uh -huh. Madison Square Garden, but I did not meet him because nobody introduced me and I was too shy to just walk up. Yeah. And he had his entourage with him. Yeah. You wouldn't want to steal his girlfriend anyway, that'd be trouble, right? All he had <laughs> was a bunch of little green men with him. Green men? Yeah, from all the dollars. At, uh, oh. I guess. No, they actually had green skin. Maybe it's from being indoors too much. <laughs> so you I liked him, but I, I didn't get to speak. Yeah. And I had to follow him on stage after, uh, as a matter of fact, he had made some kind of remark that a certain friend of his in Tennessee that had loaned him his airplane for a trip was going to be the next president of the United States. And this is Muhammad Ali in his own building, Madison Square Garden, where he had won so many fights and had so many applause. They booed him off the stage. The, the New Yorkers don't want to hear that some guy from Tennessee is going to be the president. It's just a mistake. Mm -hmm. How about another day? Did you know James Dean then at that point? Yeah, I was, I was saying when he passed away just a few weeks after we arrived in London and I was shocked because I saw when they want to sell papers in, on the street in London they have a big sheet of blank newsprint paper that's about three feet wide and four feet tall and it's pinned onto a backboard and they take large uh, marker pen you know and leaves letters there about three quarters of an inch wide big black letters Film star dies. Well, naturally, you're going to want to find out who it is, so you buy the paper. So they, they have these rave headlines every other day in England. Uh, axe murder. Sell a lot of papers. And I thought film star dies. That was June's, one of her ex-boyfriends, a cat named James Dean, who was just starting off in a dynamite acting career in I'd met him a couple of times, but the first movie wasn't out yet, so he was able to drive around town without being molested by fans. Nobody knew who he was. Just a cute-looking guy in a leather jacket, white car, white girlfriend with white fur co coat, and a white Porsche, and it was the first Porsche in America. So I serenaded him with my guitar. I was in my Model A. It was painted black. Mostly it was rust color. <laughs> And a radiator was painted bright red. It was the only real fresh paint we had on the car at the time. 
I later did six, I got six days in jail or $25 for driving that car up the coast highway with no taillight lit at 2 a.m. after having just spent 10 days getting the engine running. Bought the car from a farmer in Santa Ana for $15. 1928 Model A Phaeton. So the fine was going to be bigger than the car, more than what the car cost. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, t I decided to take the jail sentence, and I could bring the Bible. I had never read the Bible. I was very backward in my religious education, and so I thought, now's my time. <laughs> so you came back to New York after. Sorry, you got your tea here. Oh, you There's water there. Water. If you want. I think the tea's down there. Thank you. Thank you. you came back, Stephen, to uh, New York after London, and there was a uh, whole folk scene happening there in the village. It was starting up, yeah. Yeah, the great folk scare, people have called it. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> I wasn't aware of it as such, you know, but like I was right in the middle of it. And when you're in the middle of something, you don't see it the same way as it looks on a TV camera. Well, so let me, so one of the... Uh, well, you can have a sip here. I'm going to quote a little bit here from God, a guy who showed up. Another nice non-Jewish boy whose name was Robert Zimmerman turned into Bob Dylan. <laughs> so in his book, he talks about it about that same time. He shows up in New York, and he's trying to impress people. Some guy named Pancake. I don't know who that was. But John Pancake. John Pancake. He published a little magazine about folk music. And yeah. Very strict about what they liked the purists didn't like yeah. the purists so he authentic so, old time mountain music only please yeah. and they were big fans of mine up until the time when I, I was the first white boy to record Hallelujah I Just Love Us So by Ray, Ray Charles, Charles. Yeah. and I was turned on to Ray Charles by a jazz musician Alan Eager in Italy in 57 we, I missed a lot by being in, in Europe six years. I didn't know what was going on here or elsewhere. But we were having a good old time traveling around Europe on a Vespa motor scooter and hitchhiking and riding in trains. So Dylan writes in his book, Chronicles, came out about 10 years ago. He is in New York, young kid, and he's uh, trying to make it as a folk guy. And he says, this pancake guy says, tells him, you're trying hard, but you'll never turn into Woody Guthrie, Pancake says to me, Bob Dylan. You better think of something else. You're in it for nothing. Jack Elliott's already been where you are and gone. Ever heard of him? No, I'd never heard of Jack Elliott. John said he'd play me his records, so he took out a record and played it for him. The record started to spin. Jack's voice blasted into the room. San Francisco Bay Blues. That's my favorite song. Damn, I'm thinking this guy is great. He sounds like Woody Guthrie, only a leaner, meaner one. Not singing the same Guthrie songs, though. I felt like I'd been suddenly cast into hell. <laughs> Jack was a master of musical tricks. He draws, and he's so confident it makes me sick. Is that Bob talking? Yeah, yeah, it's in his book. Holy mac! All that, and he plays. All he that, and he well. plays the guitar effortlessly in a fluid, flat-picking, perfected style. His voice leaps all over the room in a lazy way, and he's explosive when he wants to be. Another thing, he's a brilliant entertainer, something that most of the folk musicians didn't bother with. Most folk musicians waited for you to come to, to them. Jack went out and just grabbed you. Pancake was right. He was, Elliot was far beyond me. Jack alone was something else, though. On the cover of his record, you could see his eyes. It's an uplifting thing. I left the apartment, went back out on the cold street, 
aimlessly walked around. I felt like I had nowhere to go, felt like one of the dead men walking through the catacombs. It would be hard not to be influenced by that guy I just heard. I'd have to block it out of my mind, forget this thing, tell myself I hadn't heard him and he didn't exist. He was, I think he was overseas in Europe anyway. The US wasn't even ready for him. Good, I was hoping he'd stay gone. <laughs> That sounds like Bob. So you, you can say you're the guy, maybe the only guy other than maybe a wife or two who gave Bob Dylan an existential crisis, you know? I mean, you, you almost derailed him from his musical career, you know? I didn't mean to. Yeah. I, didn't, I, I didn't, never heard of him. I was in Europe. Nobody told me. Yeah. And there were people who knew him and hung out with him that were writing letters back in June who did most of the writing, yeah. postcards and letters to the Gleasons who were carrying, loving, carrying, visiting Woody every Sunday at their house because they lived just 10 miles away from that horrible institution where he was uh, incarcerated. It was a mental hospital. So, uh, can I help you? <laughs> you have, are we having a problem with the microphone? You unbuttoned your, your jacket a little bit. Oh, yeah, what the hell? kind of lost our... Oh my God! Real estate there. Well, it's you a good thing I don't wear a bra. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Thanks for doing that, man. Did you do do a song? You want to do another song? Sure. Yeah. So how about maybe if you do another song, and if you might consider it, maybe even a Bob Dylan song. That would be cool. Okay, we get your guitar, and we'll do that, Bless and then we'll, we'll Thank you talk so a little more. This is a real genuine Marin County cowboy hat. <laughs> This is what our cowboys wear because most of the horses that they are riding don't eat hay. They drink gasoline. <laughs> they got four tires. And uh, they can go places, but almost go places where a horse can't go, but that's not true. Thank you. But I got another hat here that I like, like even better and I'll wear that because this is a kind of a Mexicano Texas cowboy hat that a buddy of mine made and he just specialized he used to ride bucking horses and rodeos and work on ranches and play guitar and then eventually developed a, a beer belly and uh, doesn't ride that much anymore but he makes hats cowboy hats and uh, he made this one, I helped him make it. And there are no two of them look exactly alike. They're not part of the style. It's not like, got a name like Boxyard Crush. But uh, I'm just used to wearing it, it's comfortable. I hope it's all right with you if I wear the hat in the house. <laughs> This is a song that was written by a friend of Woody's who I met in Topanga Canyon when we went out there in 1954 in the car with Billy Fair, the banjo player, and ended up in Topanga. And there was this Bess Hawes and her husband Butch Hawes. Butch played the fiddle, Bess played the banjo, and uh, evidently Butch, Butch wrote some songs. And this is one of them. It's called The Arthritis Blues. Went to the doctor, the doctor looked sad 
Well, he looked in his book And he told me what I had And it's all kinds of trouble Gonna find you somehow Arthritis is the thing to miss It'll leave you walking with a double twist And it's all kinds of trouble Gonna find you somehow You can't stand up, can't lay down You can't sit in the chair You can't roll on the ground And it's all kinds of trouble you somehow gin rum and whiskey will ease the pain you wake up in the morning and it's right back again and it's all kinds of trouble gonna find you somehow gin rum and whiskey will ease the pain you wake up in the morning and it's right back again And it's all kinds of trouble Gonna find you somehow Arthritis is a thing to miss It'll leave you walking with a double twist And it's all kinds of trouble Gonna find you Somehow, if I live to be 43, you'll find me running like a model T, and it's all kinds of trouble. Gonna find you somehow. If you get to heaven, tell the judge for me, I've had 16 years of the third degree, and it's all kinds of trouble gonna find you somehow arthritis is a thing to miss it'll keep walking with a double twist and it's all kinds of trouble gonna find you Butch Hawes wrote that. Yeah. You want to sing another one? Sure. Oh, we can. Well, you got time for one more? Well, yeah, we do. Oh, good. If you want. This is one I learned off a of Bob Dylan record. We were uh, snowed in a mountain cabin. Couldn't get the door open. Bad blizzard. Very cold. The door was frozen shut. Had plenty of firewood, had a whole porch full of firewood, and we managed to get a load of firewood into the house before the door froze shut. This e that evening, we'd started out at a radio station on another mountaintop. This is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where they used to make steel. And he had this radio station going up there, and I was... Uh, kind of distracted by some unfinished business or some suddenly finished business back in uh, 
back where I was living in New York City, and I needed to kind of get out of the building and do a little thinking. So I climbed the radio antenna, which was about 400 feet, I believe. And I couldn't see the ground after a while because the snow was so heavy. It's just that I didn't have gloves and the rungs were kind of cold and it was my fingers started, you know, getting numb. And But I went all the way, just about all the way to the top, I think, and then came right back down because it was uh, no fun with the, with the uh, frostbite. Got in the radio station, turned on the cold water. Don't ever put your hands in hot water if they're frozen because you'll, you'll kill your fingers. And, uh, you know, it might take three, day, three or four days before they'll drop off, but uh, <laughs> that's a bad thing. Hot water on cold fingers, don't do it. I run the cold water on my fingers for about 15 minutes and then gradually warmed the water up and got, got circulation going. And we got in the car and shut the, shut the radio station down. It was a bad blizzard. Jumped in the car, drove down to the valley and up the other road to where he lived in this other cabin up there and loaded the firewood in, started the fire in the stove, got some... He had, uh, oh, he had a whole freezer full of venison. We were plenty of food. And a bottle of Cutty Sark with the square rigger on the label. It's an actual clipper ship, Cutty Sark. She's the last remaining clipper ship in the world that's intact. And she's a museum ship in London. You can go on board. She's in a dry dock. Caught fire and burned all the way down to the waterline from the rail to the waterline a few years ago. I don't know if it was arson or just poor management. <coughs> but they didn't lose the masts and yards and rigging because that had already been taken out for a re-rigging re job. So they didn't lose all the spars. They just lost the upper half of the hull from the deck down to the waterline. And they spent about $8 million fixing her up and making her look like a clipper again. She's the only clipper left. We had this bottle of Cuddy Sark. <laughs> and a Bob Dylan record. And I'm looking at the clipper ship on the label. And I'm listening to Bob sing. Don't think twice. <laughs> it's all right. It sort of harmonized with what I was trying to think about up on that radio antenna before it started freezing me off. And now it's a nice warm fire, plenty of firewood. We're stuck in there for three days. I learned a new song. It's a speed record. It usually takes me three to six months to learn a song. And so uh, I like that song. I learned it pretty well in three days. Snow melted, it warmed up. We opened the door. We got in my motor home, which was a 1950. Chevrolet half-ton Bell telephone repair truck with a canvas cover on the back. I had a mattress up there. You could sleep. It was my first motor home. And we drove it up to U Nork Titty. They were having the open mic at the gaslight. It was Mississippi John Hurt's night off, Monday night. And the usual crowd were assembled. Uh, some folk singers mostly are wannabe folk singers or would-be folk singers and has-been folk singers. 
all there that night. It's a small room. Peter Lafarge, my best friend. <clears throat> Dave Van Rock was there. Peter and Paul were there. Mary was out shopping, I believe. <laughs> Thought, I'll get up and sing my new song that I learned. The previous singer had been booed off the stage and the things were cal calming down and I got up on stage. You know that, and it was a real friendly place in there. <clears throat> Nobody ever got booed off that stage, no matter how bad they were. <laughs> there was always music lovers. Sorry. I just came from Seattle two days ago. We played Sunday night in a very nice restaurant called the Triple Deck, Triple Door. We had two other uh, very good concerts leading up to that in Oregon, traveling in a van, uh, kind of a little motorhome, staying in pretty nice hotels, but never getting enough sleep. So I, I kind of get a cough now and again, lose my voice, sometimes get laryngitis. But I always try to get the words out. And that was those words of this song, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. So I got to start playing it, and uh, Bob was there, the guy that wrote the song, Bob Dylan. And uh, it's dark in there, you know. There was a little light coming through a hole in the curtain in the back that sort of glinted off of his halo, and I recognized him. <laughs> He's kind of waving at me. He says, uh, I relinquish it to you, Jack. I said, what'd you say? <laughs> he says, I relinquish it to you. <laughs> I'd never had anything relinquished to me before. <laughs> so I have to sing the song. Let's pick, not necessary. Pick, pick and two. No use to sit and wonder why, babe If and you don't know by now And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe It'll never do somehow When your rooster crows at the break of dawn Look out your window And I'll be gone You're the reason I'm traveling on But don't think twice It's all right And it ain't no use In the calling out my name, gal like you never done before Ain't no use in calling out my name, gal Cause I can't hear you anymore Thinking and wondering Walking down the road 
How I once loved a woman, a child, I am told. I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. And it ain't no use in turning on your light, baby. The light I never knowed Ain't no use in turning on your light, babe Cause I'm on the dark side of the road Still I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind we never did do much talking Anyway, but don't think twice It's all right So long, honey, babe Where I'm bound I can't tell Goodbye is too good a word, babe So I'll just say Fare thee well I ain't saying you treated me unkind You could have done better But I don't mind You just kind of wasted my precious time, but don't think twice, it's all Something like that. Thank you. Thank you. That's why I always wear a cowboy hat. I gotta tell you about cowboys. I can, you can tell me about cowboys. Everybody I've ever met. I go to the cowboy poetry gatherings. I've been going every year for 27 years, and uh, it keeps getting better and better. In some ways, it, I think maybe the year, first couple of years were somehow better than now because some of those guys are not with us anymore. But it's been like a great thing. But so there you are in the village. You've uh, met Dylan, and he's relinquished songs to you and all of that. And in. <laughs> You mentioned Dave Van Rock, and in his book he talks about, so you're back there, but you hadn't uh, encountered your parents in quite some time. They came to hear you sing oh, and play, yeah, and, your mom, yeah, and your mom said, uh, look at those fingers, such a surgeon he could have been. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they never could. 
let up on that. <laughs> Seeger, when, whenever I go see Pete, which is not frequent, and uh, it's always a great thrill because I only get to see him once in five years or something. I go by there. He lives in an inaccessible kind of a dirt road, steep up a mountain, in a, co a cabin he built with an axe with the help of a lot of friends and fans and people. It's about 100 miles up from New York City on the Hudson River. Pete Seeger, great man. and He was a great man, yeah. I think uh, he invented the long neck banjo so he could just get some low notes into it. You're listening to a conversation and musical performance with Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Steve Heilig. So you were playing, though, through the 60s. You had made some records and... Uh, yeah, I you did know. some recording in England, uh, about, about five albums on that Topic label, and did a little recording in Italy, but that got stolen by a company over in Portugal. It's funny, I played a concert in Portugal one time, totally unknown there, and uh, there was 2,500 people in the audience, and they were selling copies of my Italian record, which I had never actually uh, had anything mm -hmm. from. And now it was out on a Portuguese label. I was getting an international thrill. Never found out anything about the money, of course. Yeah, Scudos. <laughs> well, then you didn't record for some time. You actually uh, didn't see, I think, uh, Dylan for quite some time. But then you wound up yeah. on that Rolling Thunder uh, review tour that was... Uh, that was great fun. In the mid-70s, uh, very famous, big kind of rolling party, right, that went that on? Was. There was too much whiskey on board. <laughs> and it was some filmmaking. You know, Bob was the director, and he had hired for a scriptwriter and kind of a guide in creating some of the dramatic, dramatic scenes uh, in the movie because it wasn't just a documentary about going down the road in a bus and doing shows and playing music. Bob had to, like, make it into a sort of a modern-day fairy tale movie. And I got to act some... Uh, is that Ronaldo and Clara, the Ronaldo movie? Ronaldo and Clara. Yeah, right. It was a Nobody... kind of a famous or infamous four-hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very long. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, on that tour, so there's Allen Ginsberg, Sam Shepard, all sorts of people. Uh, that actually, there was a few years ago, there was a, one of Dylan's bootleg series. They put out a, a recording of that, some of my favorite stuff of his, and you were on Music that tour. that we played during yeah. that tour. Yeah, yeah. And the hurricane was the big song. I remember trying to free. Yeah, uh, free that was hurricane. the night I did meet. Uh, I didn't meet. I was in the same room with, with. Uh, Muhammad Ali. Oh, that was that during that the big yeah, benefit. And we right? went and visited Hurricane Carter in right. prison yeah. the day before. And so you then uh, started recording again later on, and and uh, had a real in New York. Resurgence. I mean, you made two records in a row. Got Grammys. You got one for best folk record, and then you got one for best blues record too, right? Bob Dylan wrote me a letter of introduction to Mr. Hammond, John Hammond Sr., who was the guy that signed Bob for Columbia Records, huh? and a great person in the whole history of the music world. He uh, practically discovered Bessie Smith. Billy Holiday and, and many other kinds. greats. Yeah. Oh, long list. And he was a charming man. I was thrilled to meet him. I'd never met him before. Now I had an excuse to meet him. I had the letter. 
Dear John, it was <laughs> it was kind of a hokey joke sort of thing. It says this is to introduce Jack Elliott, who is my long lost father, who abandoned me when I was 12 years old. Blah blah blah. He goes on. I think he has very little sense of what really happened, Bob. He's just trying to tell it like it is, but he's got very thick glasses. Have you noticed that? And so he's, he signed you, Hammond? Hammond didn't sign me, no. no. But he was very charming about yeah, it. He yeah. smiled, he laughed about the, the joke in the yeah, letter. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not old enough to be Bob's dad. I'm only 10 years older than he is. Uh -huh. So, uh, so uh, Hammond showed me a picture of his son, who was in college, uh, John Hammond Jr., who I later met just a few years later. And he was a great guy, and we became good friends. And he not only sings beautifully and plays great blues guitar, but he's good on a harmonica. And he played with me on one of the records. In fact, Dylan played harp on that record too, but he couldn't use his name owing to Columbia mm -hmm. and record company stuff. He couldn't say harmonica Bob Dylan. So he made up a hokey name. It was called Tedham Border Porterhouse. <laughs> Tedham, T-E-D-H-M, Porterhouse, <laughs> on harmonica. It was really Bob Dylan. And that record has just been reissued by a company, a, recording, a record store down in Houston. What's that one called? Is that they the Friends of Mine 1500 one? 1,500 copies, and it's on vinyl. Oh, it's okay. called Jack Elliott. Oh, uh -huh. So then, then you ended, after a couple Grammys, I think it was after, you ended up at the White House when we heard... Uh, yeah. Bill Clinton. So what was that like for you after all this hard traveling and busking around the roads and, you know, being kind of an inspiration to many but not unknown from a lot of other people, really, and then you end up getting this big medal? And it was meet. fun, especially, actually, the meeting, the moment of meeting Bill Clinton, uh, which is, you know, just that was my own private, that moment, because there were 30 of us people there, so they all remember that moment that they met which was not the same moment that I met him, but it was a few moments later. <laughs> he come along and I, I don't know what to say. I don't rehearse or plan or write a script of what I'm gonna say. I just blurt it out. <laughs> what you hear is what you get, sort of thing. Uh, just and, and, uh, hoping that it's gonna be true. <laughs> How was so, the food there? Food was good. Yeah. Very good. And they serenaded us. The Marine Band serenaded us. Now, I had had one shot of scotch or bourbon in the Abraham Lincoln room. And uh, then I had two glasses of red wine, and food came, and uh, the band are sitting playing. And I got a little bit carried away. I get patriotic when I'm drunk. <laughs> For a lot of people, it's the other way around, so that's cool. That's all right. <laughs> and I'm saying they're playing America the Beautiful, and I happen to know the words. And I'm going, America. And my wife, Jan, was a little embarrassed by the volume. You know how it is? You know, three drinks, everything sort of dims down, you don't hear as well. I didn't realize I was, you know, too loud. But she looked over at the other table where President. Clinton was talking with a uh, great movie actor who was 
one of the people that were there for the uh, award. He played the part of Captain Ahab in Moby Dick. Gregory Peck. Peck. Yeah. Gregory Peck was sitting at the presidential table. And Jan looked over there, probably a little worried that maybe I was causing a scene, perhaps. <laughs> and she glanced over, Bill Clinton was grinning at me. I didn't dare look. But it was funny, and uh, I enjoyed singing Amer America the Beautiful with the Mer U.S. Marine Band backing me up. I don't know if they recorded it. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. Sure. They must have had a tape recorder going someplace in the White House. <laughs> Chances are. <laughs> in a... So since then, you've made a couple other records, and I just want to highlight one. The, this is the latest still that you've recorded, right? That's it, yeah. Stranger Here. So this came out in uh, 2009, so about five years ago. It's an amazing record. So this one is mostly blues-based music, as I hear it. Yes, I had very little to do with this uh, record as far as making it. I was tried to learn the songs, but I don't learn songs that quick or that well, and I listened to... 15 songs that the record company guy had recommended for me and had prepared me a CD to listen to with 15 of the wildest and greatest old blues songs that I have not heard. Some I had heard. One of them I knew. Only one song on that album that I knew. Know it by heart. And it's still the only one that I can say that I know. But it's, I mean, so this one was this uh, great musician and producer Joe Henry based out of LA and he puts it's done this guy's from Los Lobos oh, um, I mean it's just an amazing band I really recommend this one and it's all these classic blues tunes and how you know I think he says in here in the liner notes how many people in their seventh decade of their musical career could be making the best music of their of their lives you know so it's, I mean it's it's really something so I congratulate you on that being able to do that I was totally unprepared on the way down I told Gaynell my manager I said, I've listened to those records all I could stand to listen to them. Songs, you know, I play them five or six times a day for about two or three months. But I still couldn't quote you more than one verse out of any one of those songs. Well, so I committed to memory. I just sort of took a bath all, all, musically, you know, like let, let, the, let, the, let the sound flow past my ears, but I wasn't. I wasn't real, I wasn't pulling with my oar. I was sort of drifting with the tide and letting the music flow by and getting used to it. Well, then we went down, met the guys, and I thought, oh, okay. When we started playing together, in an hour, I knew that we had no problems and no worries, and it was going to be a great album. It's like in their basement, right? Your recording studio? Yeah, yeah it's in this yeah. basement yeah. in a house that one of the very first songs I ever recorded was an old ballad I learned off of some old record of a banjo player singing it about the death of James A. Garfield, President Garfield. He was murdered by some guy with a gun. His widow, Mrs. Garfield, after the president died and they got over that bad scene and grief, she moved to Pasadena and bought a house. And this is the Garfield house, and that's where we did the recording. It was in the basement of Mrs. Garfield's old house. And that was the first song I ever recorded in my life, just about, was the death of James A. Garfield. I can't even remember how it goes now. 
Well, let me tell you, I was driving over the hill once just a couple of weeks ago or something with this plan because I was like listening to you a lot to get ready for this day. <laughs> and there were some guys out here, three guys that looked like uh, the band or something, you know, but they're young hipsters, guys with beards and everything. One guy had a guitar, they're hitchhiking. So I picked them up, taking them over the hill, and this is playing, you know, and that. In the car. In the car, yeah, and in the car. I pick up the hitchhikers, they get in the back with the dog and, you know, everything, and we're, and it's playing, and, you know, just, hi, how you doing, where are you going, and well, well, I'll take you over to Mill Valley, you know, everything like that, and they're listening to this, and, and, you know, I just said, hi, how you doing, you guys, you know, they had a band, they were off, you know, looking for places to play, and we get to the end, and the guy goes, what were you playing there? And I pulled it out of the thing, I look at that, and the guy goes, that's the real stuff, isn't it? He didn't, he didn't say stuff, but it started with an S, yes. right? So, <laughs> so, you know, you impress these young guys. They were all like 20 years old, you know, or something like that, you know. I'm sure you've never counted. How many songs do you think you know? I never stopped to count it. I know. I, 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 I did count them once way back uh, when I was a kid, and I probably knew more than 300, but I don't know how many uh -huh. I didn't really do you, I, I, I don't even know a lot of Woody Guthrie songs. Woody wrote 2,000 songs. I only know about 25 of them. Because they're the 25 best songs in the world. One of them, he wrote this long, long ballad about the grapes of wrath. It's called Tom Jode. And uh, that's a heck of a story. He made the whole book. It's about like a 600-page book. And he put the whole thing into about... 14 verses of a song. He later received a letter from John Steinbeck. You heard about that? No. John Steinbeck was very pissed off. Oh. He said, you little son of a bitch. It took me 600 pages to say what you <laughs> <laughs> Kind of worth it. A verse is worth a thousand words, yeah. right? That's one of them great songs. Do you have a memory of what the first song or the first music that you heard that really made you, you know, want to play music and devote your life to it, really? Well, on that rodeo, we had a clown named Bramer Rogers. His, his son ended up as a, as a very good guitar player, and I think he settled in Las Vegas. And I haven't seen him in a long time. Jimmy Rogers. Don't know what he's doing. But he was a bull rider in his youth, and then he went to Vietnam, and he came back. And both Jimmy Rogers and Punky Crothers came to see me when I had a gig to play in a nightclub in in uh, Pasadena, and it was during uh, uh, one of my divorces, and it was kind of a rough time, and I uh, wasn't in very good spirits. And they cheered me up. We went out and had coffee after the show and talked about J.E. Ranch Rodeo in 1947. And this was in 1974 or something like that. Before the Rolling Thunder Review. That Rolling Thunder Review, that was a big, big thing. I, I'd like to watch the movie someday and try to yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let me. You live right up. You live right up the coast here. So how did you end up in West Marin? Well, I've always loved boats, 
And uh, when I just before I met Woody, I met Eric von Schmidt, who was about to sail around the world in a Belgian pilot catch. That's a sailing vessel with two masts. It was about 75 feet long, wooden boat called L'Ensoumise. That's like the unbeaten is the name of the boat. And uh, when she was a pilot boat, I don't know if she had a name or just had a number. Most pilot boats just had a number on the sail, like Wanderbird. The schooner Wanderbird was Elba number five. There were several pilot ships built all the same. 85-foot schooner, beautiful boat. I came here right after I met Woody in a car. with a buddy of mine, Cole Cooper, who was in the Air Force and was being transferred to Travis Air Force Base. And it was right after I met Woody. I mean, I went right from that hospital where I was visiting him. He couldn't hardly speak. He was appendicitis. But he told me to go across the street and introduce myself to his wife, Marjorie, and the kids. And she did show me around he might as well take a picture because I'm out of it now. <laughs> Technical moments. It's like cell phones. I'm good with old trucks and young horses. I can't figure out a cell phone to save my butt. But you, so you drove out here in the, that must have been in the early 50s then, right? Your first time you came to West Bay? 51. Wow, yeah. And I rem I'd read about the schooner Wanderbird sailing around Cape Horn in 1935. Beautiful big uh, two-masted schooner that was purchased by an American sailor in Europe. It was, it was uh, before World War II, 1932 or three, and I was like one year old then. And he bought this old out-of-service, worn-out pilot boat for very little money. That was 85-foot schooner, but she was in pretty good shape, and he sailed her with an amateur crew from the Elba River in Germany to Boston and spent about two years working on the boat, fitting her out for Cape Horn, all new sails and new rigging, especially new running rigging. And his wife, the captain's wife, gave birth to a young lad. Uh, this captain who bought the boat, his name was Warwick Tompkins, Warwick M. Tompkins. And so the boy is named Warwick Jr. And they brought him home from the hospital when he was like three days old and brought him aboard the ship. And I think it was the cook who was the only paid hand on board, Harrison. I met him when he was 100 years old few years ago. He's passed on now. He, it was all amateur sailors in that crew. Sterling Hayden sailed in that boat. Uh, came to Sausalito eventually, right? Yeah, yeah, he spent a lot of time here. Right. He was living in an old railroad car down in the mm -hmm. shipyard. But you didn't, you, so you came through in the 50s, but you didn't move here until much later. No. You were in Mendocino for a while. Uh, I, I met the Wanderbird and uh, fell in love with the boat and got invited to come on board for dinner. That led to about, I think I lived on board for about four weeks, three or four weeks. And then hitchhiked back to New York and got 
called Woody and uh, he invited me to join him at a party where he was going to be playing music. He was in a closet upstairs in this nice little house. People were asking for him to play requests. He was just warming up. Sure, he'd play a request, charge a nickel a request. And somebody asked him to play the Blue Tail Fly, which was a Burl Ives song. And Woody said, Blue Tail Fly, sure. That's a Burl Ives tune. I get 15 cents extra for Burl Ives tunes. <laughs> and he played him the song. I thought, this guy's a wise ass. But a nice wise ass. How old's your guitar here? This one here is only about 40 years old, I think. I got it. I had another one just like it that was stolen on the worst tour I've ever been on. Cat Stevens World Tour. Most money ever made, but it was not a happy tour. Cat Stevens was, uh, he wasn't quite sure where his mind was leading him. I, he had many strange and mystical things to share, but not a lot of talking and not a lot of uh, hanging out. And uh, it was just a, a tour. Big one. And the guitar got stolen in the Miami Beach Auditorium when I went out to watch Cat Stevens' set. Always loved his music. I'm being followed by a moon shadow. That's cool. So and while he's singing Moon Shadow, somebody stole my guitar and went out the window with it. And there were eight armed policemen backstage. I grabbed one of them, physically grabbed him by his elbow, caught him off balance. You know, they weren't paying attention. Somebody just stole my guitar. Come with me. And we went down to, I, I laid him down in the backyard. And there was the rubber tracks right next to a sapling tree. The kid climbed up the tree, went in, open window, went in the next door dressing room, took my guitar in a case. It had an airplane-proof guitar case. The case was worth almost as much as the guitar. And I never saw it again. Went out the window. So do you want to take a few questions from people? Is that Sure. If, if you have any? Uh, sure. Yeah, that's we all right. We might do that if we want. So if people want to ask. Q&A. Q&A. Can you tell us about how the rambling came into your name? That's a very simple one. I know the answer to that. <laughs> and once again, it's not the romantic answer that you're waiting for. It wasn't from me traveling around on freight trains. As I said, I've only ridden on one freight train, and it was very scary. I like riding in trucks. In fact, that's how I learned to drive a truck, was as a hitchhiker. Driver was tired. He said, can you drive? I said, well, I never drove one this big. Well, you give it a try. <laughs> he was desperate, had to make time. And he slept. That was the amazing thing, because he was so tired. He, he could actually sleep with a stranger driving a semi. Someone who had never driven one before. I didn't wreck it. He woke up about a half an hour later and he said something and went back to sleep and he woke up about an hour and a half later and said, that's the first time I've ever been able to sleep with somebody driving somebody else, even people I know. I said, well, thank you. I feel complimented. 
I started falling in love with trucks. I could tell a GMC from a Mac, from an auto car, from a white, from a, a, a Peterbilt, Kenworth, a Brown, Federal. I drove one of each for, never had a license. I've just done it as a hobby. Drivers have made me promise them that I would never buy a truck. <laughs> And I go to sleep dreaming about that Peterbilt I'm going to buy someday. Probably a 50s model with uh, no automatic transmission in it, you know, two gear sticks, a five-speed main and a three-speed brownie, double clutching. Pete Seeger was singing me happy birthday at the... Uh, uh, Newport Folk Festival was after the show in the tent in the back at the fort there. And there I see the cake, it says 80 on it. I thought, I ain't going there. <laughs> <laughs> Never been there? <laughs> ain't going there. And I double clutched and I got it in reverse. I'm going backwards and I'm 78 now. <laughs> going on 77. It's the best decision I ever made. I feel younger. <laughs> How about the Rambler part? Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Odetta's mother. I had a, this Model A Ford, I bought. I, I think you got your answer there, didn't you? <laughs> what goes around, come around. <laughs> okay, I'll shut up. I know when I'm not welcome. No, no, I mean, <laughs> listen, that was somebody, one of the people that I was reading about said, you know, it's, uh -huh. the name is not just about how many miles he's covered. And then Chris Christofferson actually thought, I bad. never heard anyone so enchanting on subjects I didn't give a damn about. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got another question? I get carried away and I forget what I was talking about. And, and it takes me on a trip. That's right. We go places well, okay. I've never been before. All right, you're going. Let me be your guide. No, you're going there, so I'll quote you again. Another one I read somewhere. I do shows off the top of my head, which, which is very healthy because there's very little up there. <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Any uh, question, Heather? Old stories or people you... What's the blues song that you actually know from... Oh, yeah. That's well, called the How Long Blues. You'd like to hear a little bit of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's on the it record. It may not here. be the best one on that record. There's some fantastic songs on that record I wish I knew. <clears throat> See, I was reading it off a paper, and uh, the band was so great that day. I knew right away after an hour of recording down in that basement there in Mrs. Uh, Garfield's house that uh, we were going to have a good album on our hands because they were, they were playing so well after the first recording that I knew it was just going to be real easy and it was just going to be a lot of fun, and it was. And the record company, you know, they're interested in not losing a lot of money and... They were, they were going to charge me, I think it was $1,000 a day if I took more than five days in the studio. They paid for the first five days. 
I guess it cost them five grand, a thousand a day. And if I ran overtime, it was out of my pocket. So I did it in four days. <laughs> they made a grand on it. They had to give me a Grammy. That's the way it works. It's just, it's just a lucky shot. But here's the song. introductory meeting. I was 17 years old. It's just a radio station. It had Woody on there too, but he disappeared. I didn't meet him. He disappeared right after the show. But Leadbelly was standing there putting his guitar in the case, and I was about 17 years old. I was standing right behind him, you know, watching what he's doing. And I guess maybe I was standing too close and accidentally bumped his hand or his elbow or something bumped into me when I put the guitar away. And Leadbelly said, "Oops." And I said, excuse me. <coughs> or maybe I said, oops. And Leadbelly said, excuse me. But I remember it verbatim. <laughs> I remember every word. I just don't know who said what. If I get hollow like a mountain jack, I climb up top this mountain, call my baby back. How long, how long, how long? 
I'm going to get a 10-speed bike and start herding cattle. <laughs> so, Ramblin' Jack, it's been such an honor and a pleasure Thank to you. have you here. And Thank you, I think Steve. You're all, you're all so privileged. I think if you feel like me, I feel very privileged to be able to do this. I want to thank our mutual friend, Susie Mills, for helping to arrange this, and Kira and thank, yes, Soundman Ken. I'm also supposed to remind you that we do these for free, but we welcome donations just to be, you know, to defer the costs of uh, doing these things here. But um, I got nothing more to say. That was fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. You've been listening to a conversation and special musical performance with Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Steve Heilig. Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.